This Sunday, um, we're drawing to a close in our um, sermon series, Hashtag Relationship Goals. Um, This evening, we're going to be talking about some of those goals, in fact, and what are the goals of God for all of our relationships. We're going to be talking specifically about marriage, but not solely about marriage at all. Um, You know, I was chatting with a a chap in a coffee shop a few weeks ago, um, and I, I, I kind of, we were talking about what it is to be a single young Christian man. And having kind of spent the vast majority of my 20s and early 30s as a single young Christian man in the church, it finally occurred to me that I almost never talked about it. Well, what a missed opportunity that was. So now, having really lost all authority to speak on the subject, I would like to, um, because it is important. So we're going to be talking about some of those things this evening. Um, This morning, uh, we're going to be talking, I I gave you plenty of warning about this, but we're going to be talking largely about sex. Um... I've been practicing saying that in the mirror, so uh, don't freak out. Um, And I I know sometimes when we talk about these kind of slightly more embarrassing or awkward subjects, there's a tendency amongst you, because you love me almost as much as I love you, um, that you might come to me at the close of the gathering and say, Pastor Greg, you did a great job. And and you do that because you want to encourage me and because you see my cheeks getting gradually redder as we go along. And I love you for it. But let's understand that the preaching of the word is not just so that I can get stuff off my chest. Uh, Forgive me if it ever feels like that. Um, Nor is it solely so that your ears might be tickled. Um, nor is it solely so that we might be built up in the word of God, although that is really, really important. It's so that having been built up, we might go and encourage the folks in our world um, with the truth about the love of Jesus Christ. Anybody on board with that? Yeah. And so, you know, over recent weeks, we've kind of been handing out these booklets, Listen Up, that they're about preaching, and it's about, you know, the whys and wherefores of preaching. It's not to say that Pastor Greg's amazing, or that any of us who preach and have that privilege in this church are amazing, but it's to say this is an important aspect of what we do as a church. Now, I'm conscious that over recent weeks, we've raised some issues that may have been difficult for some. You know, we've talked about um, the, the, the nature of, of, uh, of, of child um, bearing and child raising within marriage. And I appreciate for some of you that raises um, heart issues of, of, of that's not been a possibility for you in your journey. Um, you know, on, on the other end of the spectrum, we, we've talked about some really difficult things like abortion, for instance. Or we've talked about um, some, some things to do with marriage and, and other such aspects. And I appreciate, and, and today, this morning, we're going to talk about some other tricky stuff. Tonight's probably going to be the same. I don't want to just open up these subjects and just kind of bombard you with a little bit of information and think, job done. Does anybody know that that's not true? Um, we urge you as part of this church to be a part of a transformed community. Those are our extended families of missionary servants. That is kind of where we get to unpack these things together with people who love us and are invested in our lives. That's absolutely essential. But if anything we've talked about or continue to talk about today is really troubling or, or really um, raises up hurts for you, please don't just go away and, and think, I wish he hadn't. I wish he hadn't talked about those things. Because the reason why we open up these things is so that firstly God's grace might be poured into our lives. Because God knows you better than I know you. And he loves you better than I love you. He loves you better than you love yourself, which is really good news, isn't it? Um, But secondly, so that there might be processes of healing and wholeness in our lives. Does anybody know that they need healing? Okay, I hope that's all of us. Because if any of you convince yourself that you don't need healing, well, then you're in a tricky place. Um, you do. I do. And there is always a work of healing and wholeness in our lives. Uh, yes, last week when we talked about um, 
parenting a little bit. I forgot. I had a handful of parenting books, eight of them. Um, I forgot to give them out. Um, so they're for the first eight parents who want to come and grab them at the end of the gathering. Um, but they're all different. But um, we've got loads of ways that we can encourage you and bless you um, in your journey, no matter what your journey might look like. No matter the hurts or the regrets or the shame of your past, um, we as a church, the pastors and elders of the church, those who lead the transformed communities, um, this morning at the close of our gathering, I'm sure there'll be folks at our start station at the back and, and at our prayer stations in the corner. Don't go away without just chatting with somebody. You don't need to unpack everything about your life, of course not. But just to invite some next steps that will be healthy and good for you in Christ. Now, saying that as well, this morning, you know, we are going to talk about sex. There's not going to be anything particularly untoward in what I'm going to say, because um, I don't want to say stuff like that, basically. Um, we have said for the Bible class, ages 11 to 14, to be in with us this morning. Um, I hope that's okay, parents. Um, as I've often said, parents, if you've got young people, you need to be the first person who's talking with them about sex, not the second. Um, so don't wait until the conversation comes up and they've heard all sorts of things before then you're trying to kind of put those genie back in the bottle or try and kind of fix um, some of misunderstandings or misconceptions. Can you be the people who have the first conversations with your kids? Is that okay? Um, I, I've resolved, Erin and I have resolved that we're going to try and do that. Um, she's actually way, more, way better at it than me. I think it's being raised by a nurse. Um, everything was just kind of you know, out there. I tend to get really embarrassed. But I'm resolved that nobody's going to tell my boy about these things before I am. Um, because I love him. And I want him to know about God's good and gracious gifts. So, all right, let's talk about sex, shall we? Um, I actually kind of, I, I toyed with the idea of, you got it. Um, I toyed with the idea of playing that to you. You know, let's talk about sex just as we started. I thought it might diffuse some of the tension. Um, but uh, I, I'm not going to sing it to you, obviously. That would be really, really weird. Um, but, uh, you know, that's kind of the general kind of air of what we're aiming for uh, this morning. Um, first things first, we live in a world of confusion. You know, we've discussed it in loads of different ways in our series already. Um, and, and, and oftentimes, for, for very selfish ends, humanity has a tendency um, to separate or, or divorce things that God has said ought to be put together. So within our culture, within our society, um, it's, it's totally common to obviously divorce love from God. Most people have no idea about the love of God and they're, they're desperately trying to fashion lives of love. And let's face it, some people, they, they're really nice people, aren't they? You know, it's not like everybody outside of the church is not a good person. It'd be ridiculous to say that. But folks are trying to experience the fullness of love, yet separated from God. What a tragedy. Oftentimes it extends itself into every area of life. Folks try and separate marriage from, from God's purposes from marriage. Or separate family from, from God's mission. Separate sex from procreation. You know, these things, they go on and on and on and on and on. And when what God has created to be good is altered from its created intent, God's design... It's, no, it's not surprising that what results is often not good, even harmful. Yet we live in a world that still loves love. 
or loves at least kind of idealized versions of it or kind of glimpses or, or moments of love. Did anybody here enjoy Valentine's Day recently? I, I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up just in case people are like, no, it was rubbish. I got forgotten. No, no, hopefully not. But um, um, I heard a really, really good story that I think will resonate with all of us. It's not so much about romance. It's just about some really niceness. Um, there's a guy, um, Major William White. I think he enjoyed Valentine's Day. Why? Well, he's 104 years old, a U.S. Marine veteran. We've got a photo of him. Can we pop that up? Favor, help me out. Um, there's a picture. There he is. He looks dignified and noble, doesn't he? Um, there he is. He earned a purple heart in World War II. I, I think that's good and rare. Um, Major Bill, as he is fondly known, he lives in an assisted living facility in Stockton, California. One of his fellow residents decided to launch a social media campaign. I love this. A fellow resident, another senior. Um, decided to launch a social media campaign. That's impressive, isn't it? Anyhow, uh, they got it going. It was called Operation Valentine, which simply asked for friends and strangers to send a greeting to Major White on Valentine's Day. The idea was maybe get 100 cards or so to give Major Bill a good laugh and a bit of a smile on his face. That's sweet, isn't it? It's really nice. I know over the road in the day nursery that we're connected with, the kids from the day nursery, they took Valentine's cards to the residents in the care home. Isn't that sweet? Oh, you miserable bunch. I expected a much bigger R than that. Uh, yeah. You're faking it now. Shut up. You know, you can't, it's too late. Um, it, beautiful. They were expecting about 100 cards. Guess what happened? Bill, not in this picture, but he's now about waist high in cards in his room. <laughs> because they're stacked in piles and boxes. They're actually spread it out throughout the care home because he has received today around 70,000 cards. That's pretty cool, isn't it? They arrive from people in every single state of the United States, along with loads from overseas. Now, as this all was unfolding, it's really started to touch people's hearts. And Major Bill, he says that he realized it was more than just a greeting to him. It was a way for people to say thank you, not only for his 35 years of military service, but to all the veterans who never get to be thanked or awarded for, for what they have done. He found it to be a, a wonderful experience, he said, and reflected, and this is, this is the funny bit, when he and his wife, they were together 42 years before she passed away, they never once celebrated Valentine's Day. <laughs> so now he's inundated with 70,000 cards and they hadn't really bothered when they were together. I think that's beautiful. There's this kind of sense of, of love and, and something that could be and something more. And people, are, people love to love. There's something about us. I think it's pretty funny that, that he never celebrated it with his wife over 42 years. Um, some of you gentlemen are like, all right, I'm going to follow Major Bill. Um, no, it's not an excuse. Um, it's, uh, I, I don't know, maybe he knew the truth about good old St. Valentine's. Anybody know the truth about St. Valentine? Or the truth as best as we know it? Well, apparently, St. Valentine, his saint's day in February, on that day, 269 AD, he was beheaded and buried for helping marry Christian couples who were persecuted and for looking after persecuted Christians. It's not so romantic now, is it? While in prison, awaiting his fate, he prayed for his jailer's daughter and her blindness was healed. Praise God. This is a good thing, isn't it? I think the love of God was really breaking in here. But then he was taken to be killed for um, 
looking after Christians against the persecuting Roman state. And, and he left this girl who had been touched by the love of God a little note, and it was signed, Your Valentine. That's where it comes from, eh? Isn't that rather good? Don't you like that? If you don't like that, you really are miserable. I'm going to have to do something to help you this morning. Um, it's powerful, but already we're starting to see that perhaps God's idea of love maybe is a little different to some of our notions. There are so many funny ideas about love and certainly about sex within our world. One thing I think is true, though, within our society and culture here in the UK at this moment is that most folks are pretty certain that Christians and the church have almost nothing to say about love in general and pretty much nothing good to say about sex in particular. I think that's really true about our cultural moments. I'm sorry to say that Christians, we've been pretty well labeled with, with one label or another, one of maybe prude or bigot or hypocrite. And I'm also sorry to say that certainly within Christian history and, and maybe even today, there are some who, well, the label fits pretty well, hopefully none of us. But those labels, they're stuck on. And anything that we as the church, anything that we as individual Christians, anything that the Bible, anything that the heart of God wants to say about love, and particularly about sex, it's hard to get much of a hearing for it in our society or our culture. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. In fact, in some ways, that's nothing new. Um, an old um, agnostic poet, Swinburne, he wrote this about Jesus. He said, Thou has conquered, O pale Galilean, and the whole world has grown grey at your breath. That's pretty stark, isn't it? It was his understanding that actually to, to know Jesus and to follow Jesus was actually to kind of leech the colour out of the human experience. That actually it didn't increase love or the enjoyment of life, but it shut it down. Does anybody know anybody who thinks that in their world? I suspect we all do. And many folks in our, in our colleges and in our schools, our places of work, even in our streets and homes, they'll wonder, why on earth are you a Christian? Isn't that just a miserable experience? There was a, a comic writer, H.L. Mencken, and he wrote of a particular kind of Christian experience, of the Puritans. And he put it like this. He said, Puritanism was the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, might be happy. And there's that kind of sense, isn't there, that somehow that's kind of the Christian nature, that we just kind of follow Jesus so that our faces might look gloomier and gloomier as our lives go on. And that, if possible, we might stop anyone else from being happy in our world as well. Is that really what God says about love? Is that really what God says about sex? I think nothing could be further from the truth, in fact. God not only values sex very highly, much higher than any other person who's ever lived on the face of this planet, God actually invented it. Shock news. You know, amusingly enough, um, talking about Puritans, I read this week as I've been studying of a, a 17th century Puritan church in America, and, um, and in this church, they placed a gentleman under church discipline, get this, because he wasn't having sex with his wife. Church discipline because he wasn't having sex with his wife, and his wife was upset about that and asked the pastor to do something about it. 
Don't you love that? I think that's absolutely fabulous. I've said that now. I'm a little bit worried that you're all going to come to me and ask me to fix your sex lives. Um, yeah, maybe not, maybe not here right now. <laughs> Send me an email. It'll be a le- less embarrassing. I don't know. Um, I just love that. Puritans were like, we're going to discipline you because you need to have sex with your wife. Um, I totally love that. Um, absolutely fantastic. Why... <laughs> Yesterday we heard that when somebody preaches, the most that's retained by folks is about 10%, unless you do something else about it. I'm conscious now, all you're going to think about is that. Um, But let's try and invite the Word of God to just speak something into our lives. Um, Why is it that we might believe that God has good plans and purposes for sex? And we're going to see what that looks like. It's not just kind of any old how. Well, we've been rooting a lot of our thinking in the book of Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. And um, I want to read to you a passage um, from chapter 4, reading from verse 9. Now, this is in the voice of of the gentleman um, in the the picture. And and he's going to be talking about his love. Now, the only reason I can read this without getting really horrendously embarrassed and worrying about what, what I might kind of cause amongst you is because the language is really of its time. I think if this language was up to date, there's no way I'm saying this. Um, but you'll get the sense of God's, of God's affirming of his plans and purposes for men and women in, in an appropriate environment. So reading in chapter 4 and verse 9, he says this. He says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. Don't freak out. Not his actual sister. Okay. So I want to point that out in case you don't know that. In the ancient Near East, it was quite common um, in a love relationship to talk of sister and brother. It was just talking about the closeness. Nothing else. You have captivated my heart, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruit. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved, this is the voice of the, of, of the lady now, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I'm just going to let that there. Um, you know, with just a little bit of imagination, we've got some sense of what's being kind of got at here. Um, I know some of you are probably hoping that I would read from, I think, is it chapter 2? Uh, where some of the language is just utterly hilarious. Um, Somebody shared with me this week, um, uh, it was a a little spoof about the idea that somebody created love hearts based on the Song of Songs. I don't know whether any of you... We've got a picture of this. You can put it up. And um, there you go. Love hearts that you could share with your beloved. Um, You have goat hair. Um, This is some of the imagery that's in the Song of Songs. Um, This is the reason why we don't get too embarrassed. I'm not going to read them all out, obviously. But uh, your teeth are like sheep. Um, Does anybody want to see these love hearts really happen? 
um, three of us. We can make this happen. Um, I think it's absolutely fantastic. The point being, and you you might want to take that away now, otherwise they're just going to get distracted. Um, The point being, all the way through this book, read it for yourself. There's literally no embarrassment whatsoever about enjoying one another. The, the, the language that is used in this, and it's like cycles of poetry, it's like five cycles of poetry coming to its culmination. All the language that's used in this book is, it's, it's, it's rich and it's full, but can we say this? It's erotic and it's designed to be so. Now, I want to put this in its context again. You know, we've already said on numerous occasions that these folks, they're in a betrothal relationship. It's not just the same as fancying somebody or dating somebody. In fact, it's more even than an engagement is within our culture. As engagements are often just they're solely rooted in romance. A betrothal was a, something very formal and recognized within the wider community. But within that environment, as they're awaiting their wedding day, they're allowing their desire for one another to grow and find some levels of expression as they wait for its consummation. The Bible says that in these right and proper places, sex is good, desire is good, Enjoying one another, a man and a woman, enjoying one another as they, as they, as they, they see the, the prospect and the possibilities of what it might be to be man and wife. It is a good thing. Just jump with me if you want to into Matthew chapter 19. And here, Jesus being challenged on some of these issues and some stuff we're going to talk about tonight. He answers in chapter 19 and verse 4, he answers some people, he says this, Have you not read that he who created them, that is God who created people from the beginning, made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, sorry, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I want you to notice there particularly that that when Jesus is talking about the marriage relationship, he's talking about a man and a wife coming together. He could talk about lots of different things. He could talk about the way that they're interested in the same things. He could talk about um, some of their kind of heart attitudes towards one another and the romance of that experience. He could talk about the mingling of souls, which is an appropriate aspect of marriage. But he says, they've become one flesh. Jesus Christ here affirms for us something that we've seen from the beginning in the book of Genesis as we've looked at it, um, that God actually intends for bodies to become one that there is a a physical dynamic to marriage and that is part of God's plan and purpose it is a unity of flesh a unity of the bodies which God has designed and as we said last week a huge part of this is for the creating and the raising of kids according to God's design but if we've recognized that God has made sex and that God has, and, and, and if we recognize that sex is fun, it's satisfying, then do we really think that that happens by accident? Is that somehow, you know, God made sex, 
But then it just turned out to be kind of fun and satisfying and a beautiful thing for two people to enjoy in coming together and uniting themselves. I don't think so. It seems to me that if God made it, and this is the way that it potentially has turned out in its proper place, then that's God's actual design for sex. God has designed something that for a husband and a wife should be something that is both fun and satisfying and draws them deeply into union one with another. Is everyone with me so far? I'm not saying funny stuff anymore, so you've all gone very quiet on me. But this is really God's plans and purposes. It's not accidental. It's designed. God intends the union of a man and a woman in marriage to be a pleasurable thing. God hasn't designed marriage such that men and women trudge around in the misery of their commitment, endured for the good of the kids or to make, keep up appearances. No, God intends joy in marriage and our joy in married sex. God intends this. Now, there's a point probably to be made here. And um, we need to realize this, that if we come to the marriage bed, husbands and wives, we're not coming to that place as though it's some sort of independent or, or segregated aspect of relationship. The truth of the matter is, a marriage relationship is brought into the marriage bed. So if one part or partner in the marriage is living a life that is self-centered and selfish, then they're going to be bringing that into the marriage bed. There's no way that you can separate out the two. Relationship is integral to the whole. If somebody in a marriage is, is, is abusive or overbearing, then that also is brought into the marriage bed. And if God's good design is for, is for joy and unity, I want to encourage you, if you're a married couple here this morning, how are you seeking joy and unity and the preference one of another in all of your marriage? You won't find it in the marriage bed just because you know, God waved his magic wand over it. It may be God's design, but if we're not crafting joy and unity and the loving one of another in the rest of our marriage, then we won't find it in the marriage bed either. Does that make sense? It's not a separated thing. God intends for the mingling of souls, the meeting of minds, and the, the one flesh nature of marriage to be all of a piece. You can't take one out from another and, and hope that somehow it will stand on its own. It's like having a, a three-legged stool and you take a leg off the stool and hope that it'll still keep you up. I think we all know how that's going to end. These things are meant to be together. Now, knowing the good of sex within the context of the committed, lifelong, monogamous relationship of marriage, time and again, the Bible urges us to honour the one we will be united with. In our key book, The Song of Songs, those erotic longings of the lover and the beloved, what they are tempered with and how they're actually channeled in a healthy way is with time and again repeated refrains to wait. And we said already, they're developing these longings and expressing them within a committed relationship within, that is known within their community. This is not you know, some kind of furtive thing that's happening just between two people in the background. 
But even so, we find over and over again in Song of Songs 2 and verse 7, chapter 3 and verse 5, and 8 and verse 4, and something similar again in chapter 5 and verse 8, we find these instructions. And in chapter 2 and verse 7, it goes like this. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That is, wait until the time is right. Now, the time being right, look, this is not a matter of candles or mood music. That's not what makes the time right. The time being right is of the faithful, lifelong marriage commitment, unity one with another that can lead then to sexual consummation. Uh, that's where the whole book of the Song of Songs is headed. You get towards the end there, chapter 7, and, and it's reaching its, its, its kind of moment there at the end as they, as they finally enjoy marriage and they enjoy that unity one with another in every way. What does this mean for us today? And You know, maybe I'm not going to look at you because that would be weird and really embarrassing, but... Maybe if I can speak to, to maybe younger people or, or those who are single and hoping for marriage. Um, I don't know, but it, it seems my perspective that all too often in times past, young people were encouraged to, to wait to have sex until they were married. I think we can agree with according to God's plans as we've seen in the Bible. There hasn't really been a very good case made for that, it seems to me. At best, it seems to me that folks kind of senior in the faith or Happily married couples. It's almost disgraceful, isn't it? Having happily married couples telling people who aren't yet married what they should do. Uh, but there you go. And there would always be this, almost this sense that you should wait until you're married to have sex with this strange idea that somehow it would make the act of sex itself better. Now, without being crude, it's not my intention to do that, it doesn't make much sense, if I might say so. I don't want to be crude, but people don't say practice makes perfect without good reason. Just waiting until you're married is not suddenly going to make the act of sex suddenly absolutely better than anybody else on your first go. I'm not even going to look at anybody while I'm saying this. (laughs) That's not what's going on. What is going on? Because there is something going on. Why does the Bible give us a specific environment or framework for sex? Well, the truth is, waiting to have sex until you've formed a covenant relationship of marriage is actually the only way for you to enjoy God's best for you in sex. Because as we've already made the case, a union of the body is made alongside a union of the soul. I don't think it's possible according to God's design of humanity to be naked and vulnerable with your body without being naked and vulnerable with who you truly are. It's a case that we made as we talked about soul detox at the start of the year, isn't it? We're not bodies with attack on soul. We're souls with a body. The things are one and together. And so if we're naked and vulnerable in our bodies then we are also naked and vulnerable with our soul, with our very being. It's no surprise, is it really, that, that so many kind of um, sex encounters that people have within our world need a fair bit of alcohol to get them going. Because 
truth is, there's an awful lot of naked... I was going to say nakedity. I don't think that's a word. Um, nudity and, and vulnerability involved in sex. And not just of the body, but of the being, of who you are. I don't think it's at all surprising that people have to slightly alter their encounter with that in order to make that a possibility outside of a loving relationship, outside of that faithful and lifelong commitment one to another. To make yourself truly vulnerable with somebody requires that you know that they're not going to just walk out tomorrow. To make yourself truly available to somebody requires that you know they're going to make themselves truly available to you today, in that moment, but for as long as God grants us here on this earth. Sex is not a thing in itself. It sounds obvious, but it's worthwhile saying. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is a part of God's good and gracious plan for people giving themselves to one another. We're going to talk about it a little bit more this evening about the nature of marriage and, and some of the things that are said about submission. But we need to recognize that when Paul talks to marriage in the book of Ephesians, the first thing he says is, everybody submit yourselves. Everybody submit yourselves. And I want to suggest to you that if a marriage isn't about one submitting themselves to another and another submitting themselves to one in a very deep and lifelong way, Sex cannot possibly be what God has made it to be. It cannot possibly be. Secondly, God speaks something profound and powerful through the unity of a husband and a wife within marriage and within sex within marriage. You know, I don't want to overstate the case, but sexual union within marriage speaks also to the eternal destiny of all Christians. I don't want to weird anyone out here this morning. But the Bible does talk profoundly about the nature of Jesus Christ as a bridegroom coming to this earth to receive to himself his church, described as a bride. And the marriage relationship is given that kind of honor within God's grand plan for all eternity. The Bible teaches us that here we are in a moment of time where we wait the coming of Jesus Christ. Does anybody want Jesus Christ to come back to this world? Yeah? Ah, there you go. I needed to get you to respond and that was the only way. Um, so we want this to happen. Actually, profoundly and powerfully, can our waiting for the union with a husband or a wife speak something powerful into our own lives and into our culture about the nature of all things? That's a pretty grand hope for your marriage, isn't it? Pretty grand hope for your union within sex. That actually it says to our own hearts about what are the truest and deepest longings of our lives. And where are they going to be satisfied? I wouldn't say to any young person, wait until you're married to have sex because somehow it's going to make that moment you know, physically blissful. It, it, it might be. It might be a bit tricky and take some time for things to kind of happen as you hope they would. But I would say that we are called as Christians to understand union in its truest and fullest sense and to wait upon these things with our lives and with our bodies. There we are in a a marriage service and, and we say, don't we, one to another as we give our vows, with my body I honor you. All that I have, I give to you in the love of Christ. 
And we promise, don't we, to love, honor, and cherish one another, even until death do us part. The reason we have these vows is because they speak as to God's purposes. And it's within that context that God has designed sex to be two people, one flesh, one in commitment, one in purpose, one in longing for Jesus Christ. Again, the Bible speaks something wonderful into this in Hebrews 13 and and verse 4. The Bible says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The world in which we live really has nothing to say about the fullness of God's plans for sex. Nothing at all has a great deal to say about how we might take sex and separate it out from everything else and just drop it into this, that, or the other. And, and sex can be something that you can have with whoever, whenever you wish, and however you wish. It takes these things and separates them apart. And obviously, they're far less than the, you know, what they might be if they were part of the whole. We need to speak this better word about sex in the context of love and marriage, to understand it, to have the integrity to practice God's best for sex. It's for our good. But it's for the good of the society in which we live. And, and here's where I just want to kind of briefly unpack something else. that is a difficult thing to talk about, I know. But I believe unless we as Christians can understand these things for ourselves, seeking the grace of God to live according to his will and speak them into a better world, uh, speak the better word into the world, we're leaving the world to struggle and indeed suffer in what is second best, at best, and oftentimes far, far worse. We live in a world that has not only tried to kind of have sex separate to God's plan, but it's distorted sex and distorted it quite terribly in various ways. As I was preparing um, to, to share with you, I, I was doing some research with some Christian organizations that speak into these things. The truth is, I don't think I've ever had such a depressing week of study in my life. And I don't say that as though I'm kind of holier than thou. I think actually what God has been doing in my life over recent years is, is actually kind of moving me from a place where, to be honest, I would have tolerated some of the distortions of sex and actually been totally fine with them to a place where God is actually showing me how things are not good and actually moving my own heart. I don't think my heart was as God's heart. I think it's a work that he's been doing in my life, to be quite candid with you. But over this week, I've been truly disturbed. And I'm not going to share with you some of the things that have really disturbed me because I don't think it would do you any good. But I just want to give you a glimpse into the world in which you live. And this probably won't come as any shock to you, but here's where we are. In our world, in the US alone, there are 40 million regular users of online porn who spend, just those Americans, spend $4 billion on video porn which is more than on all the major sports put together. This this is big. Seventh biggest industry in the United States. And we might talk about the United States, but we know that the culture here is not much dissimilar. The truth is, the power 
of accessibility and anonymity, which is something that is growing increasingly, which again I would say, look, if you're a parent of a teenager or even somebody who's approaching those teenagers, have these conversations with your children. Okay? I just want to say that really clearly. Stop abdicating your responsibility, parents. This is... Accessibility and anonymity is growing exponentially. More so, you know, look, I, I, I say to Erin sometimes, on my Facebook, I get friend requests, and they're not from friends. Some of you gentlemen, you probably know what I'm talking about because it's targeted at you, and it's normally pretty obvious that it's a gateway into something. <laughs> I had one from somebody called Dorothy, and that really caught me out. I didn't expect Dorothy to be involved in porn. Um, but, uh, sorry. I don't mean to be flippant. But these things, they're just a moment away. And, and they, it's, not, it's no longer something that you have to go to find. Not, you know, it used to be just a couple of clicks away. It's not even that anymore. It's coming to find you. And this is growing more and more and more. And, you know, and it's, it, this is a really tough thing. And it's not just for young people. I know this is pervasive right throughout our culture. We need to be honest about this, but honest about the way that it, it distorts sex really terribly and it gets a hold upon hearts and minds. It is at its worst, obviously, when it's distorting the youngest minds that are still trying to understand their emotional life, their hormonal life, and, and what these things are. But it distorts anybody and everybody. And yet, all too often, we aren't being shaped by the biblical view of the joy of sex, which there is but by the world's distortion. Look, ask yourself honestly and regularly, are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind or are you being conformed to the world? That's what Romans 12 verse 2 asks you. And we've got to ask ourselves these things. Uh, ideally, we need to have people who we love and trust who are in close accountability with us and we need to be asking one another these things. Are, are we being transformed by the renewing of our mind? Or are we being conformed to this world? Look, the tragedy is this. Again, in the United States, but a Barna Group study found that approximately two-thirds of self-confessed Christian men watch porn monthly, which is about the same as non-Christian men, and 15% of Christian women too. Now, I don't share these things for you to kind of like tut or for some of you to say, oh, I'm glad that's not me. I share these things because we need to open this candid conversation. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to kind of hopefully show you ways that you can take this forward in a healthy way. This is something that is after you. I, I know a lot of the visual culture around pornography is primarily after men, but it's not exclusively men by any stretch of the matter. And you might say, well, the Bible doesn't talk anything about porn or any of these things. Well, look, we've already made the case that the Bible has a very high view of sex. And this is not that. But the Bible does talk quite clearly about sexual immorality. 26 times in the New Testament, it uses a word porneia, which means sexual immorality is a catch-all for any use or experience of sex that is outside of God's good design for sex. This was what was understood by the New Testament audience. So please don't convince yourself that you can find something that hasn't been referred to by the Bible. God has one good plan for sex. Anything else the Bible saying is within this porneia. 
Within the Bible, six of these things, there are, at times references, they're in Paul's writings. They're in, uh, lots of them are in the, the letters to the Corinthians who had a particular struggle uh, with this area of sin. Look, the Bible teaches you clearly, 1 Corinthians 6.13, your bodies are not made for porneia. That's what the Bible teaches really clearly. And the Bible teaches then in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6, the Bible says, so flee from it. Don't just kind of hover around the edges of it. Leg it. It's not strong to say, oh, I'm tough. I can be around these things and it's not going to affect me. The Bible gives you no mandate for that. The Bible says you're not tough. And even if you were, don't you want God's best? It says leg it from sexual immorality. Run into the arms of God. That's what the Bible says. And the Bible says you shouldn't seek it out. Again, go into chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians and verse 2. talks about a temptation to sexual immorality. Don't seek it out. Seek God's best. That's the, the clear instruction of Scripture. And then the Bible offers us hope again. If you were to go over into 2 Corinthians verse 12, chapter 12 and verse 21, the Bible says that God... God says we need to repent. That is, allow for the changing of our mind, our hearts, and our activity from these things of sexual immorality should we fall prey to it. Look, the end of the matter is not if you sin. That's not the end of the matter. The sorrow is not if you get it wrong or fall away from God's plan and purposes and the joy that God has for sex in your life. The sorrow is if you don't repent. The sorrow is if you don't turn again to the God of mercy who has a good plan for your life, who loves you so very, very much. That's the sorrow. And the Bible teaches us that, that there is no other appropriate healthy environment for sex other than what we've already seen. Run away from sexual immorality. Don't seek it out. Seek God's best and repent. If you fall, pray to it. God has a way for you. If we don't pursue God's best, what does it look like? I, within our own lives, guilt, shame, regret. Not only a separateness from, from those around us. Look, these things, they can even infect marriage. It's not only a separation within a marriage, but a separation from God. These things can affect and infect in these ways. What about within our world? Well, there's an ultimate divorcing of sex from the joy of a, a lifelong committed marriage union. Well, the latest figures show a 14% increase in sexual offences reported to the police year on year. And we know that those that are reported are just the top part of the iceberg. Many of those who are most harmed by the distortion of sex in our society are, are the weakest or the most vulnerable or, or those who are most objectified within our society. Prosecutions for the possession or distribution of child abuse images have doubled in the last 10 years. By one recent survey, thinking about those who are most objectified by these things, 80% of women said that they felt bad about themselves when they looked in a mirror. 80% of women feel bad about themselves when they see themselves in a mirror. I hope that the men in the room are most offended by this. And genuine relationships of love and trust suffer. One article I read questions this. 
How will young women find true, sensual, slow-burn experiences in men who've been indoctrinated by pornography? Psychologist Philip Zombardo says of young men, they don't know the language of face-to-face contact. Constant arousal, change, novelty, and excitement makes them out of sync with slow-developing relationships, relationships which build slowly. This is the world that we live in. I don't share these things just to horrify you or disturb you or unsettle you, although I'm sure they do all those things. Look, this doesn't end anywhere good. And when we live in a world where women and even children are routinely degraded in a pornified culture, is it any surprise that we end up in a Britain where a woman or a girl is killed every 36 hours, which is the highest rate in 14 years? Are you horrified? Well, come on, let's come back to our hearts. Let's come back to our hearts, because this is where the change happens. This is where the possibility of a better world begins. It begins with us. Look, today, if you here today are realizing that you have been, as it were, divorcing sex and sexual desire from God's intended plan, if you know perhaps that your sex life is not in tune with God's will, if you know perhaps that you're struggling or all too often failing to break free from the grip of porn, or if you know that what's going on in your head or your heart or what's happened in your past perhaps, maybe no fault of your own at all, has such a hold on you that you're not living a healthy life in Christ, if you know perhaps that your marriage bed and your wider marriage isn't what it should be perhaps, look, Can I say this with sincerity? It's not going to be just enough to be horrified or even just enough to agree with the Bible. It's not going to be enough to hear the challenges within what we're talking about this morning and simply say, today's the day, or I'm drawing a line in the sand. Look, that might be a good start. It is a good start, but it's not enough. Look, if, if you were addicted to alcohol and you asked for my help and all I said to you was, well, just stop buying beer, that wouldn't be much help, would it? It wouldn't do you any good. In the same way, you know, if you were addicted to porn, part of the solution might be about internet filters and accountability software. That might be true about changes in your patterns of behavior in your life and inviting appropriate scrutiny within your life. But it's, you know, just, just one act is not enough. We need to recognize that what God calls us into, just as he calls sex into its healthy environment, is he calls us into health through his grace. There's going to be a need for accountability, for community. Did you know, and here's something that's really interesting, regular church attenders are 26% less likely to look at porn. That's an interesting statistic for you. Increase your regularity in attendance. Accountability, community, in all sincerity, prayer, changes in lifestyle, possibly counseling, all of these kinds of things are a necessary part of what it is for us to become healthy with regard to sex. Look, in some way or another, I would suggest that the vast majority of human beings have a level of brokenness within regard to sex. 
There have been things that we've, lies or, or, or mistruths that we've bought from our culture that have caused a brokenness within us. The best thing we can do is to admit it and to invite the healing of God. The worst thing you can do is to say, oh, that's not my problem. It's someone else's business. I'm fine. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, it is possible that that's true for you. You're in a beautiful place. But still, don't, don't, don't be flippant. Invite the grace of God. Appropriately enough, when it's appropriately done rather, James chapter 5 verse 16 invites us to confess our sins one to another and pray for one another that we may be healed. Again, I point you to transform communities. You need good Christian friendship and fellowship. You need men to be with men and women to be with women. You need to be encouraging one another as well as in marriage relationships, as well as in uh, you know, pastoral relationships or, or counselor relationships or whatever is necessary. So look, we're going to pray right now. And I'm going to invite perhaps the band to come and, and maybe just play gently in the background. That'd be great. When our gathering comes to a close and we, we worship God, there's going to be an opportunity to give our tithes and our offerings. That's going to come up in a little while. And, and then the cafe will be open and you can enjoy one another's company. That's wonderful. But right now, I just want to invite us to pray. And if you want, would you close your eyes maybe and, and bow your heads? Again, I'm not going to invite a particular act of response, partly because it's not my desire to embarrass anybody here this morning, but partly because I don't want you to be fooled into thinking that you can just do one thing or say one prayer and somehow everything might be okay. Look, for some of us here, that's not true, but we do need to begin a journey today in Jesus Christ to invite his help and his healing that we might be made whole, made complete that we might not only to be able to enjoy sex when the time is right in the appropriate environment of marriage, but, but that we might be able to speak a better word into our world. So, look, can I just invite everybody who wants to here, and this is not a statement of your life, of course, but you might just want to hold out your hands in front of you and just say, God, would you be good to me? And this, is not a, this is not a confession of anything, and I'm holding out my hands, but it's just to say, Jesus, I know that I need you. And to say, I know that my world needs you, Jesus. And so, God, would you help me and, and help those around me and help my world. And look, husbands, you might be praying for yourself, but you can pray for your wives. And wives, you might be praying for yourselves, but you can pray for your husbands and parents. I'm sure you want to pray for your kids. And, and in all these things, we ask your grace, Jesus. Look, here is the truth. And a lady in our congregation, as we were worshiping earlier, she came to me and she said, I really feel God's laying on my heart that Jesus wants to set people free today. And she didn't know where we were going with the sermon, but these are the last words of my sermon. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. And this is what we're longing for in Jesus. And what I want to say to you as we're praying please from today onwards if you need help or accountability or support if things have happened to you that have hurt you and you need healing and encouragement we want to help you can I encourage you look you might need to go away from here today and send me an email or a text or, or speak to another pastor or elder or 
maybe a leader in your transformed community. You need to begin a journey. But even right now, I pray that Jesus Christ would set us free. Set us free. If there are things in our past that have hurt us and harmed us, things maybe otherwise that we have done that causes regret or shame, then we invite your healing touch, Lord Jesus Christ, and we invite your grace. Lord Jesus, we want to be people who know your work in our lives, and we want to speak a better word about sex into our culture. Lord Jesus Christ, would you set folk free? If there are struggles that are represented here that are of today, they're very current and very destructive, then God, would you begin a process of helping people to come to freedom in Christ? And Lord Jesus Christ, we ask for your protection and your guidance as we walk forward from this day. Lord Jesus Christ, we we don't ask it that we might be holier than thou, but we ask it that we might be healthy according to your will that we might enjoy what you have given us for joy in its right place and that God we might speak something better into our world God would you do this work in our lives God would you do this work in our lives Amen if you in confidence you want to invite further prayer into your life today the prayer stations are open as we begin to pray you don't need to tell anybody anything But if you need prayer for a hurt or a habit or a hang-up, then go and receive prayer. Like I've said, if you need to take an action step, then do so. You can do so in confidence with one of your pastors, elders, transformed community leaders. Make steps in Christ. We're just going to finish now in worshipping God and then enjoying one another's company. In a moment or two, you can give your tithes and your offerings. These books stay here. If you need to chat with me, you're welcome to do so. Would you stand if you're happy to do so? And let's worship God as we go from this place.